As I said, Jim attends Waterstone, so I asked him to come this morning so we could talk to him a little bit. Last week, we, we, we said that the purpose of work is more than simply making money, that it, it is to serve the, the common good, to serve others, and also it allows us to fill our design. You can get closer. Um, I won't spit on you. I only do that when I'm preaching. Um, sorry. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> sorry for that. Um, and you do have done a great job with Donovan on this the service side. But before we talk about that, I wanted to ask you uh, um, about your journey discovering your vocation and working with your hands. What, what's it like to be a tradesman? Because I know that's been a journey for you. It has been, yeah. Um, so out of high school, fresh into college, I really wanted to have work that had meaning and purpose and impact. Um, and so I thought that would be being a counselor, being a teacher, having that direct relationship and have having and seeing that impact. And so I placed a lot of value on that type of work. How did that shift for you? Yeah, so I learned my limitations pretty quickly in college, knowing that that's not how God's gifted me. Okay. And honestly, not that's... Not that way. What's that? Not wired that way. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, no pun, right? <laughs> <laughs> Unintentional. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I felt like a square peg in a round hole. Um, and really, I was kind of came to a realization that I'm kind of denying how God has created me. Um, to use my hands, um, to be an electrician, to be so a tradesman. You had to embrace that. I did, yeah. I had to embrace how God created me. Tell us, I know your wife was in school and you had to, yes. to go to work. So in my process of, I was working as an instructional aide <clears throat> part-time. We were, my wife and I were dating, wanting to get married. She was in school. And I had the obvious um, struggle of like, okay, if we're going to progress, I need to make more money. So I was like, well, this is what I know. This is what I can do. So it felt like something I could fall back on. Were you feeling like you were settling? I did feel like I was settling. That this was just in the meantime until I figure out what this calling is on my life. But then you decided to start your own business, being an electrician. Right. So life happened once again. Um, My wife, who had the stable job at the state, was laid off during the recession. Um, And so in my training licensing. It was just the next step to start my own business. And even though you, you were studying to be an RN at that point. Too. Right. Yeah. I was in nursing school and, um, I had completed the prereqs for that. Um, had a waitlist number so in a program coming back to uh, maybe this. Right. And I, in that it was my own like soul searching and like, God, what do you, what have you designed me to do? What is my calling in life? That has been like a 15, 20 year yeah, struggle for me. Absolutely. Uh, what's been the challenge of owning your own business? The challenge is finding the balance between work, um, work and family life. Often fear will slip in and I, you know, or can take control and I, I want to be really busy. And It's great to own your own business, but when you take a vacation, you don't get paid, do you? Right. Yeah. It's hard to turn my brain off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Well, tell us uh, a little more about Donovan. That's an awesome thing you've done to get him, hire him as an apprentice. Why? Tell us a little more about the motivation behind that. Why? My motivation to hire him was, once again, I wanted to have meaning and purpose in what I do. And so I thought, um, I want to give somebody a chance. And this is something I have to offer. So leveraging it, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And so Joshua Station, I thought, was a great avenue for that. But you could have just hired someone. Right. I could have, yeah. But yeah, I wanted, again, wanted to have impact, wanted to have purpose, wanted to have meaning in what I do. How much of an investment has Donovan been for you? Yeah, I mean, he started out completely, we call it green, in the industry. It had no experience, right? It was 
it was 101 electrical work. So um, he didn't even know how to use a, a drill properly on the first day. Yeah, um, that's important. Yeah. So. Um, and then I know it's been a challenge at times. It has, yeah, transportation. Because since I don't, I don't go to an office and do, you know, sit in an office for eight hours a day. I'm, we're all over the place. So transportation isn't a current struggle for us, um, but we're we're navigating that. Okay, he doesn't have a car, so you have to... Right, he currently isn't driving, yeah. so... Um, what do you see as the end goal for Donovan? Hmm. What does he see? My end goal for Donovan is, honestly, I want to empower him. Whether he chooses electrical work or not, my hope is that he learns more of who he is in God and how God has designed him. If that's electrical, great. If not, great. And it's been pretty transformative for him? It has, yeah. They've um, Tomorrow will be eight months that he's um, been with me, and they've moved out. In September, they moved out of Joshua Station. Both he and his wife are employed um, and have a house. And he has four kids. So they have four children. children, yeah. So life is happening. Cool, cool. Good job. Would you do it again? Absolutely. I feel like that's God, God's call for me where so I'm even at. even when he's done, you'll kind of repeat that process. Yeah. Well, we think you're doing an awesome job. Thanks for being a, a great model of what it means to integrate your faith into your work. I want to pray for Jim and for Donovan, if you'd join with me. Father, we want to lift Jim and Donovan. In fact, Father, I want to lift up all those people who, who work with their hands. Uh, I pray this morning that you would give them a great satisfaction in what they do, that they see it as their calling, your calling on their life, the way you've gifted them, and that, that they indeed can worship through their work. Uh, doing that in a kingdom way if they do it for your glory. Um, pray your blessing on Jim, uh, his business. Pray that Donovan would just continue to grow and learn and, and that someday uh, uh, he, he maybe even have his own business, Father, in terms of being an electrician. Thank you for the way you work in our lives and in people's lives. Um, and Father, right now we just lift up uh, the time we're going to spend looking at your word this morning. Uh, talking about uh, the art of life. Help us, uh, by the power of your spirit, to listen well and, and to be challenged. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jim, thanks. We have been in a series we titled The Art of Life, and basically what we're doing is looking at skills that we have to develop or wrestle with that help us live life well. So last week we began talking about the issue of work. Uh, we'll be talking about friendship and resiliency and end up the, the, the series by talking about how do you know God's, God, God's will. But this morning I, I want to talk about an issue that, that's a complement to work. And, and it's one of those issues we don't talk a lot about. Oftentimes we even ignore it's one of those areas where we sin, but we don't even know we're sinning. Listen to what Eugene Peterson writes about this issue. He says, It is the only sin I know of that a Christian can commit, not only with impunity, but with applause. Not bad. It has all the exhilaration of breaking the rules with none of the consequences, at least none of the social consequences. With such built-in blessings and such a handsome payback, it is little wonder that this tops the charts as the favorite sin among Christians. It is the one sin we can indulge to our heart's content and get praised as saints in the very act. 
It is the American bargain basement sin on sale in virtually every American church with a free instruction manual thrown in. The sin, Sabbath breaking. The willful violation of the fourth commandment. We don't think a lot about the Sabbath. Uh, My guess is all of us sitting here are guilty of breaking it because we're not even sure how we should implement it. The truth is you and I live in a workaholic culture. Um, traditional societies, uh, people would find their identity and their meaning and their significance primarily in their relationships and in their family and in the community. And their vocation was important, but it didn't define them. They didn't look for the vocation. That's just what you were born into. They didn't look at that vocation as, as the source of life for them. But in our culture, that's not true. Oftentimes, we uh, get our identity, our significance, our meaning, our sense of purpose from our work. So we invest a ton of time there. And it has this potential to become out of balance in our lives, to take over. Um, The pressure is on us and our technology increases that. It it used to be that you could shut work down and go home. But with these little things and laptop computers, uh, um, that's not so easy. I think in in some ways this is of the devil. I love it. But, uh, you know, it's really, really hard for me to turn this thing off. And it's amazing how, I mean, count how many times you check your phone sometime. For me, it's very discouraging because I always want to be in touch, but always being in touch means in a sense, uh, I'm always working or checking, figuring out what's going on. As time goes by, Americans have a problem with work. So how do we deal with that? What's interesting to me is um, we think being a workaholic is acceptable. But I'm not sure it is. So what I want to talk this morning about is Sabbath. And I want to do three things. I want to talk about what the Sabbath is. I want to talk about why it's important. And then I want to talk about how. How do we implement the principle of Sabbath in our life? So to do that, I want to jump back to Genesis chapter 2. We spent a lot of time in Genesis last week talking about this notion of work. But in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So you see, at this point, God is working this this Sabbath idea into the very fabric of creation. But then he kind of institutionalizes it. He takes the principle and makes it a regulation when you get to the Ten Commandments. We zip over to Exodus chapter 20. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And, And it says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your maidservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, this word Sabbath is a word that simply means to cease or or to stop. Uh, Sabbath is a stop sign in the the road of days 
in life. And the command is not simply to do the Sabbath, but to remember the Sabbath, okay, and literally to keep on remembering the Sabbath. But then he says to keep it holy, to keep it holy. So, so what does it mean to take a day or period of time and make it holy? Holy is kind of an interesting word. It, it literally means to set something apart. So when you set something apart for a particular use, you're, you're making it holy. Uh, maybe some of you have china in your house. You know, my grandmother had china. They were, were a special set of dishes. And those dishes were used for special purposes. Christmas, Thanksgiving, if you were having somebody over for dinner who you wanted to impress or, or treat in a special way or honor in a special way, I mean, you would pull out the china. It was not for everyday use. It was set aside for those special purposes. And, and what he's saying is, remember the Sabbath to set it aside as a special day, as a special day. And there's two, two pieces to this setting aside. One, he says, set it aside from work. In other words, uh, stop engaging in trying to rule and subdue and control the world around you. Cease from that. But just stopping from that, just stopping work and going out and playing golf or going fishing, or those are great things, but that's not Sabbath. Sabbath is not recreating. Sabbath is not leisure. They may be included as part of that, but Sabbath is much more. He says, stop work so you cease from work, but the day is set aside to God. In other words, we're supposed to build this time into our life where we can change our focus from work to God and engage with Him, commune with Him, uh, develop that, that relationship with the God of the universe. That's Sabbath. It's, it's, I, I like to talk about it as holy rest. Rest that is set aside to engage with God. Now, now here's what's interesting. Sabbath, especially in our culture, is not a very important thing. I, I mean, we violate the principle of Sabbath all the time and we don't give it a second thought. I've never had anybody come into my office and tell me, Nick, I broke the Sabbath. You know, nobody's ever come to confess that to me. Nobody's ever told me, I'm so guilty, I'm so ashamed. I I broke the Sabbath. Has never happened. Never. Because we don't think it's fair, it's it's such a big deal. But if you go to Scripture, you begin to understand, to God, it's a big deal. Uh, Go to Numbers chapter 15, and you find there that if a person is breaking the Sabbath, the consequence, the punishment is death. Pretty severe. We, we get that if it's adultery or murder or something like that. But the Sabbath, well, the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments. It, it is a core principle of how God has wired the world. It's really important to him. Go to Exodus chapter 31. And there it says that if, if you don't keep the Sabbath, then you know, have no part in the people of God. He's talking to a Jewish audience and saying, look, one of the things that distinguishes you, that sets you apart, is that you are a people who set aside one day every week to engage in communion with God, and you don't violate that. It's a principle worked out. And he's saying, if you don't keep that Sabbath, if you don't do that core thing, then you're denying the very reality of your identity with God's people. And you begin to understand that it's not optional. In fact, in Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah says that whether or not Israel keeps the Sabbath 
is determinative of whether they'll be blessed or, or cursed. If they keep the Sabbath, if they, if they engage in the Sabbath, they rest that day and engage with God, then God will bless them. If they ignore the Sabbath, if they, they just pretend like it's not there, just do their own thing, then they will be cursed. In fact, it was a Jewish tradition that uh, said that if every Jewish person kept the Sabbath for two days, all of them together, two days, then the Messiah would come back. This was a big deal. But it's not a big deal for us. So if that's what the Sabbath is, I think we need to talk a little bit about why it's so important. Why did God place so much significance on it? I think the first reason has to do with a sense of rhythm. When you go back to Genesis 2, what you see there is that God is designing, in a sense, the fabric of the world. And what he's doing when he designs that fabric, he's working in this principle to to the core, into the way we're wired, the way we're designed, uh, uh, of six to one. There are six days that you are to work and one day you are to rest. And the notion is if you violate that principle, it's like walking upstream against the nature of the way we're created. And there's some truth to that. If you work, 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 and never take a break, it will destroy you. And it will really destroy your soul. You can only do that for so long. And part of the reason is is we're designed to have that rhythm in our life. Omni Magazine uh, noted some research that had been done on the human body and the human mind. And it showed that there was this pattern that the body functioned better and the mind functioned better when there was a six to one balance. Six days of activity, one day of rest. You can think about it even in terms of working your muscles out. If you're always overusing a muscle, eventually it breaks down. Muscles need a period of rest to rebuild and regrow and strengthen. That's the way the world's created. That's the way it was designed from the very beginning. So when we ignore Sabbath or pretend it's irrelevant, we're working for the destruction of our house and our souls. Second reason it's so important is that it is a reminder, okay? And uh, he says, remember the Sabbath to keep it whole. I, I think it's a reminder to help us think more clearly about ourselves and about our lives. I, I oftentimes think the Sabbath, you know, when you take a pair of binoculars and you look through them, there's that little wheel on top that kind of brings into focus. I think that's what the Sabbath is. It, it's a way of bringing our lives into focus. And the very first thing it does when you practice Sabbath is it reminds you of your fundamental identity. I like what uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel writes about this. He says, six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth on the Sabbath. We especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our souls belong to someone else. And when we practice Sabbath, we're reminded of that. And it it reminds us of a whole bunch of things in terms of our identity. It reminds us that, first of all, we are created in the image of God. That's why we have to practice practice Sabbath. It also reminds us that, that all human beings are equal. It's interesting in the Old Testament, when you look at the regulations for Sabbath, Sabbath was to, to, to be practiced not only by masters and owners, but slaves. 
If you had a slave, you were to make sure they had a day of rest as well. And what's that saying is that all people are equal. All people uh, have a right to rest because they're intrinsically created in the image of God so they have value. Sabbath reminds us that, that we're eternal people, that there's more to life than ruling and subduing the earth. It reminds us fundamentally that who we are and our value isn't found in our work, simply in what we do. But there's something beyond that. And it reminds us ultimately that happiness and fulfillment and significance and meaning is found in this engagement with God. In one sense, work is secondary to Sabbath. Because Sabbath is our core identity. It's our core relationship with God. So identity. Second, when we're thinking of being reminded, it reminds us that we are dependent creatures. In other words, that we are people of trust. When you exercise the Sabbath, it's a way of giving up control. It's a way of saying to God, okay, I'm going to take a break from my work. I'm going to take a break from ruling and subduing and controlling and, and making sure everything's the way I want it. And to do that, you have to say, I'm going to trust you in that. It's very similar to giving in that way. When you give money, you're saying to God, okay, I'm going to give you this, but, but I'm really saying I'm going to trust you to take care of me even though I'm giving you. When, when we do that with our work, we're saying, I'm, I'm going to take a break from work making sure I can survive to rest. One of the companies I like is Chick-fil-A and their practice is to, to celebrate Sabbath and all their stores shut down on Sundays. And it amazes me that they can get away with that because they're in malls and shopping centers and somehow they've been able to negotiate contracts that say, hey, we're going to shut our business. None of the other businesses shut down, but Chick-fil-A shuts down. And you have to think, you know, that, that can't be a very profitable business model. And I think they've said they don't, they don't care whether it's profitable or not. We're not doing it because it's profitable. We're doing it because it's, it's the pattern that God has created in us and in the world. And we think in the end we'll be better for it. It's their practice of Sabbath. Give up control. It means you have to trust. When uh, our kids were little, their favorite picture book was a a little Sesame Street book that was entitled, I Can Do It Myself. And you would go through that book and it would have all these pictures of tying your shoe, I can do it myself, of uh, eating your sandwich, I can do it myself. They loved that. Uh, And I thought, you know, they love that because that's how all of us are. We want to be able to do it ourselves. We want control of our lives. We want to make sure we're the ones in charge. And and the reality is Sabbath forces you to understand that's really an illusion. That ultimately you you are not really in charge. God ultimately is in charge. We are dependent creatures. He may give you work, but he ultimately is the one behind it. So remembering, we remember our identity, we remember our trust. Finally, we remember what's really, really important in life. Sabbath brings things into focus for us. I want to read a little story this morning. You may have heard it before, but it's such a good reminder. It's worth, worth hearing again. It's a story that Bill Harley, a singer and songwriter, uh, told 
and I heard it on national public radio, All Things Considered. And I think it, it, it captures the heart of this notion of Sabbath and rest and helping us remember what's, what's truly important in life. He writes this. Last year, my young son played t-ball. Needless to say, I was delighted when Dylan wanted to play. Now, on the other team, there was a girl I will call Tracy. Tracy came every week. I know, since my son's team always played her team. She was not very good. She had Coke bottle glasses and hearing aids on each ear. She ran an eloping, carefree way with one leg pulling after the other, one arm windmilling wildly in the air. Everyone in the bleachers cheered for her, regardless of what team their progeny played for. In all the games I saw, she never hit the ball, not even close. It sat there on the tee, waiting to be hit, and it never was. Sometimes after 10 or 11 swings, Tracy hit the tee. In tee ball, the ball sits on a plastic tee, waiting for the batter to hit the ball, which happens uh, once every three batters. The ball would fall off the tee and sit on the ground, six inches in front of home plate. Run! Run! yelled Tracy's coach, and Tracy would lope off to the first, to first clutching the bat in both arms, smiling. Someone usually woke up and ran her down with a ball before she reached first base. And everyone applauded. The last game of the season, Tracy came up. And, and through some fluke or simply in a nod towards the law of averages, she creamed the ball. I mean, she smoked it right up the middle through the legs of 17 players. Kids dodged as it went by or looked absently mindedly as it rolled unstopped seemingly gaining speed, hopping over second base, heading into center field. And once it reached there, there was no one to stop it. Have I told you that there are no outfielders in t-ball? There are for three minutes in the beginning of every inning, but then they move into the infield to be closer to the action, or at least to their friends. Tracy hit the ball and stood at home, delighted. Run, her coach yelled. Run, all the parents, all of us. We stood and screamed. Run, Tracy, run, run. Tracy turned and smiled at us and happy to please galumped off to first. First base coach waved his arms around and around when Tracy stopped at first. Keep going, Tracy, keep going. Happy to please, she headed to second. By the time she was halfway to second, seven members of the opposition had reached the ball and were passing it among themselves. It is a rule in t-ball. Everyone has, on the defending team has to touch the ball. <laughs> the ball began to make its long and circuitous route towards home plate, passing from one side of the field to the other. Tracy headed to third. Adults fell out of the bleachers. Go, Tracy, go! Tracy reached third and stopped. But the parents were very close to her now, and she got the message. Her coach stood at home plate, calling her as the ball passed over the first baseman's head and landed in the fielding team's empty dugout. Come on, Tracy! Come on, baby! Get a home run! Well, Tracy started for home, and then it happened. During the pandemonium, no one had noticed the 12-year-old geriatric mutt that had lazily settled itself down in front of the bleachers five feet from third baseline. As Tracy rounded third... The dog, awakened by the screaming, sat up and wagged its tail at Tracy as she headed down the line. The tongue hung out, mouth pulled back in an unmistakable canine smile, and Tracy stopped right there. <laughs> Halfway home, 
30 feet from a legitimate home run. She looked at the dog. Her coach called, come on, Tracy, come on home. He went to his knees behind the plate, pleading. The crowd cheered, go, Tracy, go, Tracy, go. She looked at the adults, at her parents shrieking and catching it all on video. She looked at the dog. The dog wagged its tail. She looked at her coach. She looked at home. She looked at the dog. Everything went into slow motion. She went for the dog. (laughs) It was a moment of complete, stunned silence. And then, perhaps not as loud, but deeper, longer, more heartfelt, we all applauded as Tracy fell to her knees to hug the dog. Two roads diverged on third baseline, and Tracy went for the dog. Now, six days a week, you go for home plate. Six days a week, you plot and strategize to to be productive. Six days a week, the world screams at you, run, run, we run. Six days a week, we labor by the sweat of our brow. But one day a week, we're to go for the dog. We remember what matters. We remember who we are. We remember for our sake and God's sake why we were put on the earth. We remember that eternity is planted in our heart. We remember that there is a God and he loves us. And we remember that compassion is greater than winning. Six days a week you labor and sweat. But God says the seventh day is mine. So, what and why? The question then becomes, how? How do, we, how do we practice Sabbath in our lives? Now, a couple things to remember about this. First, when Jesus comes on the scene, he changes Sabbath from a command, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and you see his interaction with the religious leaders of the day, and, and you discover that there are moments where he violates their implementation of the Sabbath. And in that, he he says to them, don't you understand, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's saying, look, there's a principle in the Sabbath command, but it's a principle and it gets applied a little differently. It's not a a, a legal regulation. Rather, it's a principle uh, of life. How do we do that? How do we apply this this principle? So it's regulation, it's principle, not regulation. We also have to note that, that to apply it well, and here's where we get caught up, we have to be intentional. I, I mean, most of us think about Sabbath on the backstroke. I think very few of us have ever sat down and, and intentionally decided, here's what I will do and what I won't do in terms of my practice of Sabbath. We just kind of live and take a day off and do what we want on our day off but we're never really intentional about what Sabbath does and how it plays out in our lives. I like what Judith uh, Shulovitz writes in an article in the New York Times, Bring Back the Sabbath. She says this, most people mistakenly believe all you have to do to stop working is not work. But the inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was much more complicated undertaking. 
You cannot downshift casually and easily. This is why Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. Interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. The fact that we live in a culture that no longer sanctions Sabbath makes it even more difficult for us. It used to be that there were blue laws, and they were called blue laws because originally they were written on blue paper, but but they were the laws that protected Sunday. They were the laws that protected this notion of Sabbath. Stores weren't to be open. You didn't sell cars on Sunday. You didn't sell liquor on Sunday. Grocery stores would close. All of that was this this notion that Sabbath was important for the common good and that if, if we did away with it, it would be detrimental to society. I think there was some truth in that. But that is no longer the case. In the last 30 to 40 years, all the blue laws have been taken away. Now, if you have a store or a business, you're expected to be open on Sundays. But that makes it harder for us to be intentional about the practice of Sabbath. So if we want to be intentional, what should Sabbath look like? Well, let me give you a number of things that you should incorporate. First, we need to stop. What I mean by that is you have to stop working. Uh, um, A lot of times, and I do this, I have my work list and my home list. And I kind of see Monday as my Sabbath day because Sunday obviously is a day of work for me. But, But what I end up doing is I just switch lists. You know, I go from my work list to my home list, to the honeydew list. I work as hard as Monday as I do the other days of the week. I just do it in a different context. Now, part of that is because stopping is hard for me. I was trying to think, why is it so hard for me to not work? I'm a bit of a workaholic. And I've been playing with that a lot. In in, in fact, I realized that when I stop working, I don't feel very good about myself. I feel like I'm wasting time. And I come to the realization that, that Sabbath is a practice that if you don't do it, you lose it. Uh, we get out of the pattern of rest And when we get out of the pattern, it's harder to work into our lives. And when we try to work it back in, we're so out of the pattern, it just doesn't feel right. It feels bad. And I've tried to think, why is that true for me? And I realized my dad was a great dad, and he really uh, uh, tried to do a great job of parenting. But he was really concerned that uh, I grow up with a good work ethic. So one of the things he told me a lot was, Nick, you're lazy. So I grew up thinking, you know what, Dad? I'm going to prove you. I'm not lazy. There may be a lot of other things, but I am not lazy. You ask my kids today if I'm lazy, they will tell you. No, nope, he's got a lot of faults, but that's probably not one of them. Why? Because I'm always proving my dad wrong. I'm going to work my tail off. I'll do whatever it takes. I, I am not lazy. And that's a bad tape. That's a piece of brokenness in me. And it makes, me, it makes it really hard for me to stop. I'm not good at just hanging out. A number of months ago, my daughter, Chelsea, uh, moved back in with us to save some money and do some other things. And one of the things I, I, I discovered about Chelsea is she's great at doing nothing. I, she, I, she, and I don't, I'm not trying to be derogatory. I think it, it, it's a skill she's learned, and she didn't learn it from me. 
Now, now, my daughter Chelsea is a really hard worker. I mean, she works in my wife's business, so, I mean, she works her tail off. But at the other hand, she knows when to stop. And when she stops, she can just hang out, and I, I ask her, what are you doing? Nothing. I say, how do you do that? Because I don't, I don't understand that, do nothing. You know, because I, I can't do it. But I think it's critical. The first thing we have to learn is to simply stop. Do nothing. And then the second thing. I think Sabbath has to include worship. In the Old Testament, uh, when you see Sabbath practice, there's always a, a, a turning away from work to an engagement with God. Because that's an intent. A lot of times we think if we just, uh, you know, practice leisure, if we just recreate that Sabbath, those things are great to do. They add balance to life. We ought to do them. But don't confuse yourself. Don't, don't think that because you're recreating or you're leisuring, you're, work, you're Sabbathing. You're not. You stop work and you shift your focus, right? You shift your focus to engaging God. See, it's, it's not enough just to stop. I think sometimes our souls are like uh, bicycle tires. If you ride a bicycle very much, you know that if you uh, uh, ride after a number of rides and a number of days, if you just leave your your bike in the the garage, what happens? The tires lose air, right? And and to, to, to ride again, not only do you have to stop, but you have to fill the tire up, all right? I think that's the way our souls are. It's not enough just to stop work. I mean, that's a necessary thing. But, but you also have to find those things that are going to fill your soul up. And, and the primary thing that is to fill our soul up is this engagement with God. Because when we engage with Him, it begins to put life in its proper perspective. We remember who we are and who He is and what life is really about. Now, here's what's fascinating. Americans, we do this with everything. We individualize it. So we, we think Sabbath is really stopping work and spending time alone with God. And, and that's great. But in the Old Testament, Sabbath was stopping work and worshiping with the community. You find in the Jewish practice of Sabbath, they were always engaged in corporate worship. It's interesting, in our culture, we see worship, corporate worship, as optional. It's good for us, something we should participate when we want to, but, but it, it's not necessary to, to a vibrant relationship with God. And I would begin to argue and, and become more convinced of this as I read Scripture, that it is essential to a vibrant relationship with God, that, that practicing Sabbath means corporate worship, and it needs to be a habit of our lives, not simply something we do occasionally. One of the things I've noticed in the last 30 years of ministry, when I started, uh, the average attendance was about three to four times a month that people would come to church. Surveys now tell you that the average attender comes about 1.5, 1.7 times a month. Because worship's optional. We don't see it connected really vibrantly to our relationship with God. But that's not how the New Testament sees it. There is something that happens in the community of believers when we engage God together. And I'm not saying you don't engage Him individually, but there's something about the corporate worship of God where we're reminded in different ways of who He is. That's why in Hebrews, we're we're told not to neglect the gathering of the church together because it's part of the, the practice of Sabbath that becomes a habit 
in our lives. We need other people to hold us account to the development of our relationship with God so we need to worship. So stop, worship, and then reflect. In Genesis chapter 2, when God rests, it says there that he looked on all that he had done and he declared it good. In a sense, God is reflecting on his work and he's putting it in its proper perspective. As we practice Sabbath, we need to step back from life and think and reflect about what is going on in our lives and look for the fingerprints of God of where, what he's doing and where he's active. I oftentimes think going through life is like swimming in the ocean. We just swim along. and We don't take enough time to look down. And sometimes what you have to do when you're swimming along is stop, put on a mask, look down, maybe even dive down a little bit. And when you do and you dive into life a little bit and take a moment to to reflect, a whole new world opens up to you because you're thinking about what's really happening in life and where God is at and what God is really doing. I think one of the best ways to do that is by journaling. I, I didn't journal much because I'm not a very reflective person. I'm not very introspective. But I got challenged to start journaling. And uh, I thought, okay, I probably should do this. But I got to tell you, journaling is really hard for me because I get up and I sit down with my journal and I write, I ate breakfast. <laughs> the next thing I think about, and I'm going to eat lunch. And if it's at the end of the day, I had this for dinner and I'm going, that's my journal. I'm not very reflective. But but I realized that I have to start looking inside a bit and and asking hard questions like, what did I feel? That's a hard question for me, you know? Uh, What did I think? What what, what happened in this relationship? What do I think God is doing through this circumstance? And it forced me to slow down and dig into my life and begin to see it very differently. It was a reflection. Fourth thing you have to do is relate. Sabbath is not a solitary practice. Not only do you engage in corporate worship, but if when you go to the Old Testament and you look at how they practice Sabbath, it, it was involvement with family and friends. The Sabbath started with this, this big meal, okay, it, with, with other people. Because you see, our relationship with God is in the fabric of a community and we need other people to experience God in his fullness. It's not a, a loner kind of deal. When we become believers, we become part of a body and it's the body that is being built together to know God. So to practice Sabbath, we have to relate to people. We have to spend time with them uh, communicating, playing, resting, doing things together, both with our family and our spouses and our, our community. And then the last one is play. Um, I think there's a point in Sabbath where you simply enjoy the world that God's created. You know, God, God was enjoying it. He sat back and he declared it good. It's good. And there's a point where, where you simply enjoy the creation of what God has done and your place in it. And you play. And that's Awesome. Look what Isaiah writes about the Sabbath. He says, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, 
And you, you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's a pretty incredible promise. He's saying if you work the practice of Sabbath into your life, you will experience his joy. When you came in, you were handed a jawbreaker. Um, that's my challenge for you this week is to, if you already ate it, get another one when you leave. Take it home. <laughs> I saw some of you. Anyway, I want you to take the jawbreaker, grab your Bible, and I want you to get alone, and I want you to pop that jawbreaker in your mouth, and I want you to stay alone uh, with the Bible, reflect and think. And the challenge is, is during that time, to write out a list of how you're going to implement Sabbath. What are the things you will do and what are the things you won't do as you practice Sabbath in your life? The jawbreaker is just a reminder to take a moment to stop and reflect and think out what Sabbath will mean for you. Let's pray. Father, help us. We're not, uh, or at least I'm not naturally good at this idea of rest. Lord, I pray that you'd make me wiser, make us wiser in terms of the art of life and living out Sabbath in a way that pleases you. Uh, Lord, help us. Because, Lord, bottom line, we just want to know you better, walk with you more obediently, and find our joy in you. Amen.